Welcome to the Quantum Biology Podcast, where we break down the practical applications of this emerging science, starting with healthy light habits and going wherever the quantum superhighway takes us. This is your host, Meredith Oak, QBC co-founder and executive coach with a friendly reminder, podcasts are conversations, not consultations. Though, if you're looking for one, check out our practitioner directory, or if you are a practitioner, we have an upcoming certification launching mid-July. www.quantumbiologycollective.org. Robert Jacobs is a strength and conditioning coach to professional athletes, elite bodybuilders, and world champion mixed martial artists. He's a competitor in the grueling strongman championships and an expert in the effects of circadian rhythms on health and fitness. In this episode, we cover what exactly happens at those strongman competitions, why everyone needs to strength train, and how small changes lead to major changes. We then go deep on circadian timed eating and circadian timed exercise, why it matters and what it is. Robert gives a lot of detail on these areas. If you love taking notes, you may want to listen more than once. Enjoy. All right, Robert, welcome to the Quantum Biology Collective podcast. It's so good to have you. Um, yeah, thank you. Yeah, you have been you have been a founding member of this for many years. So you're a full-on alumni. I'm super excited to hear your story. So I want to jump in um, just with something really interesting that you do, which is strongman, the strongman competition. Okay. Yeah. So just to give people a sense of what you're capable of and what you're into, tell us a little bit about that. So uh, I guess if you're not familiar with strongman, it's kind of one of the, one of those, like, I guess, freak show sort of sports where we lift stones and logs and cars and, um, you know, pretty much every weird non-traditional object you can think of a circus dumbbell, the big, big freaky ones. Oh, wow. Yeah. So it, cool. it's a lot of fun. Cause like when, you know, once you get out of college athletics, at, at least, you know, 10 or 15 years ago, when I started strongman, you really only had powerlifting and, uh, and CrossFit as your, you know, competitive, like lifting style athletics. And, uh, you know, in the last like 10 years or so, probably more so in the last five years, strongman's really exploded and become a lot more popular. That's, that's super cool. So are there competitions like in different parts of the world and using just whatever is in that area? <laughs> yeah, it's, <laughs> it's broken lift? down. There's, uh, there's two main organizations and then I guess one like world organization where the, you know, where the real, where the real big boys are. Um, but you know, like we'll have like local state competitions where you can then qualify and then compete at nationals. And then if you basically, if you win that at nationals or do well enough at nationals and you can go to worlds and that's where the, you know, the more famous strongman guys like Brian Shaw's it might be a familiar name to some people. That's where those guys really end up competing. Um, and they have, those are just the, the unbelievably strong, like I'm kind of strong. Those guys are unbelievably strong. Wow. Okay. So just to give us a little more of a taste of it. So if you're in one of these competitions, you get there and do you know ahead of time what they're going to tell you to lift? Yeah. So it, it, it changes a little bit depending on where you're, where you're at with a competition. Like a lot of them will try to have a mystery event, uh, you know, where you won't really know. Like I was at a, at one where our mystery event, I think was tug of war, um, with just another <laughs> human. So, you know, that was kind of odd. Uh, but for the most part you have, you know, usually three or four months to sort of prepare because they, you know, they'll divide you in weight classes and uh, uh, like skill levels. So beginners or, and intermediates versus some of the advanced. 
and you'll know yeah, this event is for time and you've got this weight and you'll try to do as many reps as you can in 60 seconds or so a lot of them are it's a it's a really fun mix of maximal strength and also endurance like we'll have some events where it's you know, really heavy weight, but you're going to do as many reps as you can in 60 seconds. And then, you know, you may turn around right after that and have a, a, you know, 700 pound carry that you're just trying to do as fast as possible. So it's a, it's a really good, you have to be pretty well-rounded. It's not the, the overweight, you know, athlete that most people kind of picture when you hear Mm -hmm. strong man, it's the sports, the sport has changed a lot. I mean, there was, I guess probably one of the more the most famous strongman was Bill Kazmaier, and he was definitely the the antithesis of sort of what you picture when you hear strongman. You know, he he was shredded like six, gosh, six five maybe, probably over three hundred pounds, but you know, visible six pack and just a just a very lean, fit, super strong individual. Uh, because you know, a lot of people have the the uh, kind of the American powerlifter, or at least old powerlifter now you know, being overweight and, and just like kind of morbidly overweight is not viewed as being advantageous. Whereas, you know, 20 or 30 years ago, there were a lot of people who, who would, the phrase used to be say, uh, they used to say mass moves mass. And, okay. it, you know, it was thought that having a big belly was a bit advantageous on things like heavy back squats and mm-hmm. mostly because your gut would stop you from sinking too deep. So you'd be a little bit stronger to stand up, which is kind of odd. Cause you know, we know now that fat around your muscle tissue actually slows down how the muscle fires and it's not as strong when there's large amounts of fat, you know, kind of hampering the the muscle fibers. So the sport has changed and powerlifting has also changed a ton now where it's, you know, it's, it's still not a, a health dominant, dominant, not dominated sport. It's actually fairly unhealthy to compete in some of these things, but you know, it's not like now it's not just try to put on as, as much fat as you can, you know, now, now you actually need to be a little bit more fit. Right. So that, okay. So the thinking on that has changed. And when you say it's not necessarily super healthy, what do you mean by that? Oh, geez. Um, so I, I, myself's a great example. I've currently got a, a blown disc, uh, from, from training for strong man and, uh, mostly because the weights and the, the movements are, and at least in strong man are fairly non-traditional. And, you know, like I said, it's a, it's a weird mix of maximal strength for, you know, for maximal reps, that sort of thing. Whereas, you know, powerlifting is actually powerlifting and Olympic weightlifting because they're just one repetition maximums. A lot of people think those sports are really dangerous. You know, you'll hurt your back lifting all that weight and they're the injuries in those sports are so low compared to things like football and, and even, you know, MMA or boxing. Um, it's just when injuries happen, they tend to be really bad because of the, you know, the, the amount of weight people are lifting, you know, if you, right your knee moves a centimeter in the wrong direction with 600 pounds on your back, you're going to have a very bad outcome. Um, you know, so the injuries don't happen often, but when they do, you know, it's a beat beats up your joints, people tear biceps, tear lats, you know, damage their spine. So it's, it's not necessarily a sport of long, of longevity. (laughs) Yeah, it is true. And who knows why, why we do what we do. We're humans. Yeah. <laughs> we have very uh, interesting motivations. <laughs> there's, you know, there's definitely some ego behind a lot of that stuff. Wanted to be the, I always wanted to be the biggest guy at a conference or the strongest guy at a conference, that sort of thing. So, right, you know, it's just, and you're, you know, at least in in my my field, you know, your your body is your business card. So, 
you know, people right. don't necessarily want to hire a, an overweight strength coach or trainer to help them lose weight, <laughs> you know, yeah. so you kind of have to practice what you preach and, and some of this stuff. So if I'm going to train big, strong people. I need to be a fairly big, strong person. Yes, absolutely. That's true. I, you, in some ways you're the, you're the role model for your clients. Yeah, exactly. They, you want, know, like us, I, they want to aspire to get where their coaches go, where their coaches yeah, go. Yeah, absolutely. Yeah. You know, you got, you got to lead by example. And you also have a background in a bunch of other stuff, um, mixed martial arts, Brazilian jiu-jitsu, judoka. I'm not even familiar with that one. Uh, judoka is what you would call a judo, like a judo player. Oh, that's judo. Okay. A proper name for judo. Yeah. So let's just talk for a few minutes about how these these kinds of martial arts incorp- like, uh, incorporate with the strength training and how you work with people. Okay. Um, you know, so a, a lot of what we do, at least for, from an athlete standpoint is, is injury prevention. Um, one of the, one of the common misconceptions, especially with things like MMA is that, you know, you have to you see these just very dumb looking workouts where everybody's in the weight room, trying to emulate what you're going to do in a fight with weights and tackling dummies. And, you know, these, these very odd sorts of exercises where it's really not, you know, our role as the coach. Uh, do it. So doing things like a, a full range of motion or an astagraph squat, for example, actually isn't one of the things that transfers the most from the weight room to a sport, but it's done to, you know, from an injury prevention standpoint for an athlete or okay. uh, MMA athletes and, and BJJ athletes or judokas even, you know, doing things like biceps curls aren't necessarily super relevant to what happens on the mat in the sport, but those things are extremely injury, you know, preventative. And they, a lot of people don't see, you know, what we do as as strength coaches in that way, but that's a, that's a very, very, very important component is just making the individual a, a stronger representation of themselves so that when they do things on the mat, that's where they, you know, they demonstrate what we've built in the weight room. So there's uh, we go, we call it transfer to sports. There's lots of exercises that just transfer in general. And that's, you know, there is no such thing as sports specific strength and conditioning, unless you're a power lifter or a strong man or, or something like that, because a football player doesn't step on the football field and do back squats. Right. You know, so that's, that's kind of one of the things that we have a really difficult time educating the public on because everybody wants to, you know, do like the little speed ladders and all these you know, movements that look super cool, but, you know, as science is progressing, we learn more and more how little these things actually transfer over to an athlete and that they're just, you know, you can, you can get really good at doing something like the speed ladder because it's a pre-programmed motor pattern. And then you step on the field and someone's hitting you, or you've got to run around targets. Those pre-programmed motor patterns are just thrown out the window because now you actually have to react to things and think and and it's very similar to the the same sort of thing with exercises in the weight room is that you know again a, a judoka doesn't step on the mat and do back squats with someone on their back but that exercise and that stimulus makes the organism a stronger more resilient organism so that when they have to do things that are sport specific on the mat they perform better and have a higher force output and and all that kind of stuff it's just not as sexy right. as yeah it's you know, true some of the Doing instagram squats and sit ups doesn't look as cool as <laughs> <laughs> exactly. yeah but it's and would that and would that also translate to people who aren't necessarily athletes, just you know, in life 
Oh yeah, absolutely. I'm more of a Pilates girl myself, but I've noticed that as I, as I get stronger, it does translate just into things like doing stuff with my children or moving furniture around the house or whatever. Yeah. You know, absolutely. Like who, who doesn't want to have more energy to run around the yard with, with one of their kids or one of their grandkids or, you know, help them practice the sport that they're trying to learn or, you know, there's a, there's a whole host of yeah. things like that. Where and it's, probably preventing injury as we, as we age as well. That's a, that's a huge one. You know, like, so one of the, one of the things we say, or I say a lot is if you don't use it, you lose it. And so when it comes to flexibility, that's a, that's a big component. So, you know, if you, if you look at a, you know, one of my, my nieces, like seven, nine months old or whatever, uh, or just a little over a year and she's got a perfect squat, you know, and <laughs> so, we are born with the ability to have that range of motion and it's, you know, sitting in chairs and no longer squatting like that for, for 30, 40, 50, 60 years, you know, and all these postures that we have now that we lose and, and we know those things aren't great. So the weight room is a really good tool or Pilates or whatever your, you know, whatever you fancy for your, your form of exercise where you can practice those things and not lose the ability to move through that range of motion. Cause that's one of the, one of the things that makes us vulnerable to injury. You know, if you, if your brain perceives a threat moving through a certain range of motion and you reach down to, to grab the child before it sticks its finger in a light socket, you know, you might hurt your back or, or blow out a disc or, you know, right. I was sidelined for three days, bumping my head on the car because my back's so fragile right now. It, uh, you know, it, it can't handle any odd forms of stimulus. Right. So having a, a, a basic strength training component is just a good basic health requirement of life. <laughs> yeah. You know, Whether so you like compete or not. Yeah. There, there's some actually really, really good long-term studies on the, on the elderly as far as strength and, and what they've measured is not their one RM back squat. It's their grip strength as just an overall measure of, you know, health and, and just neuromuscular strength. And, you know, what they found with that is that they're the stronger you are, the less likely, likely you are to fall because you're strong enough and, and reactive enough to prevent yourself from falling or be slightly more resilient to, to damage when you do fall, if you do fall. And it's a lot, a lot of, a lot of times people who aren't athletes think when someone says strength, they think super strong and it's, mm -hmm. it's just a relic, you know, strength is relative. If, if right now you can only squat 20 pounds. And you can then squat 40 pounds three weeks later, like you've gotten stronger. And that's relatively to, to what your daily demands are. That's a, that's huge progress. And it makes you more resilient. And, you know, cause like I've seen this with my grandparents, my grandmother fell and broke her hip and, yeah. and got to the point where she could no longer straighten either of her legs because she just sat, you know, getting from the chair to the motorized wheelchair and, and she could no longer stand straight up. And like your quality of life just continues to go downhill when things like that happen because you can't function. You can't go outside. You can't ground because you, you're no longer functional enough to, you know, partake in the environment and do these things that, that we all, you know, from the quantum side that we now know are so valuable, you lose the ability to function like that. Right. Yeah. That's so true. If it's, if the idea of like, getting into the elevator and going out to the courtyard or whatever you have access and whatever outdoor space you have access to. Like if that in itself is daunting, then you're, yeah, you're going to miss out on the benefits of just a simple walk, walk through the garden or sitting out yeah. on a bench outside instead of in, on your couch. Yeah. And you become dependent on whoever you happen to be around to 
you know, my, my father's in a, a memory care assisted living uh, facility and, you know, they, uh, they'll take them outside every once in a while, but if it's a sunny day or if it's as long as it's not raining, I try to get him outside every day, just at least for the little time that I can spend with him, you know, between work just to, you know, and you can see, like, you can see them function slightly better when they're, when they're not trapped under that awful lighting indoors. You know? Yeah. Yeah. We, we, um, talked my mother-in-law into spending more time on her balcony and, uh, she said, Oh, it's so interesting. I started having dreams again. <laughs> right? like, yeah. These little, things are so simple. That happened. Yeah. yeah. It's simple stuff that people don't think have a, just a, you know, a massive impact. Right. And then, and the, and cumulatively, like what I'm really starting to appreciate is just like us, how a small habit change, which doesn't seem like much right now. If I keep that change over the ensuing decades, cumulatively, like just that little habit of going outside or stretching or whatever it is. Yeah. Adds up that, over time in a positive way. <laughs> Big time, right? Big time. And that's a, doing those things is a, like a lifestyle change. You know, it's, it becomes a, like you live a different life. Like I went from being a, you know, an indoor cat who hated being outside, you know, like literally the only time I think I was outside was from door to car, car to office, you know, that, like wow. that was, no, it was terrible in hindsight. And, you know, now it's like with the holiday and everything, I've been outside as much as possible. And it's, it's a, it's a very different lifestyle. You know, I can, I can do things now with, with friends and family and whoever that I didn't do before. Cause I didn't want to be outside. <laughs> so, okay. So let's get into that. So you were uh, a strength and conditioning trainer. You worked with very high level performance. You worked with people who do, who do those, the bikini competitions where they're all like, they're just all muscle. Yeah. So uh, bikini competitors, bodybuilders, all that stuff. Wow. Okay. So that was what you did. You did all, everything was inside. You were very focused and, you know, had a, a deep area of expertise in that field. How did you then migrate over into a, into the quantum health world? What was, what was that journey like? It, it's been a, it's been a big change, you know, cause like I was definitely one of those, like, take this, take this supplement, take the, you know, like this will fix yeah. that. This will fix, you know, and it's like we bad mouth. Western medicine doctors, because that's what they do. And then you turn around and see all these functional medicine people essentially doing the exact same thing. And, you know, just because it's a synthetic B vitamin, it's magically better than some medication. Um, so I think I, one of the first things I remember that really like set me down the, the curiosity of all this was um, someone mentioning not wearing sunglasses outside, you know, because I'm like blue eyed, blonde ish would burn at the drop of a hat, never tanned. You know, I, so I played golf in high school and never had a tan. It was, you know, it was awful. And now, I mean, you know, I go outside for 15 minutes and I can be noticeably more tan. Um, but I, I always wore sunglasses. Um, you know, we like the very light colored eyes. So it was always very uncomfortable to not wear sunglasses. And, you know, it's been five, six, seven years now and, and haven't touched them at all. And, no sunscreen, never get burned, all, you know, all that stuff. So it's been a really, really interesting journey. because so I was just fascinated by, by essentially the, the impact light can have through the eye on the light on the skin, like that, that connection had just been something I would, I, I didn't know what I didn't know. And that's, that's been the really interesting thing about the whole quantum journey. It's like, you learn this stuff and you're like, oh, geez. And then you learn all this other stuff that you didn't even know 
you know, like deuterium and, you know, like we're, we're taught about the electron transport chain, but it's very, you know, it's, it's, it's like minimal importance in terms, you know, in textbooks and in courses and all that stuff. And then you realize like, well, without that, nothing else functions. <laughs> so like <laughs> maybe we should spend more time on that and then all this other crap that's your very surface level. Yes. Okay. So you, so you were um, intrigued to the idea of light. You met somebody who was like, no, I don't wear sunglasses because they mess up my circadian rhythms or whatever. And you're like, wait, what, yeah. what are they, you talking about? <laughs> they told me about this really crazy doctor uh, who, you know, who was, who was talking about all the stuff that, that everybody thought was crazy, you know, yeah, almost 10 years ago, I guess. Um, yeah. And, and you, yeah, God bless Dr. Cruz. I mean, he connected those dots so yeah. early on. It was such a gift. It, it's amazing. You listen to those videos from what, I guess, 2010, 2012. And, mm-hmm. you know, you're, you're hearing things like people like Huberman are saying now that are just now being, being talked about in the mainstream, yeah. all this, you know, it's, it's amazing how far ahead uh, guys like that are. Yes, but it also presents kind of a challenge because I, I was in that same place, right? I started to to really listen to Dr. Cruz connect the dots and all of this existing research. Um, and he so he would sort of look at, you know, somebody's work over here about light and someone's work over here about water and say, okay, if these things are true, like how does that connect? Um, and if you took the time to, to understand what he was saying, it made perfect sense. But then you're left where you're in this situation where like everybody thinks you're crazy and no one knows what you're talking about. So, <laughs> uh, to talk about navigating that and how you started to incorporate some of this knowledge into your, your practice as a coach. I think one of the, obviously the sunrise and the sunset is when people have trouble sleeping, just seeing the sunrise every day is the fastest modulator of, you know, not falling asleep fast enough, not staying asleep. I mean, you know, within 24 hours, you have better sleep and zero cost, right? Like you don't have to buy this. You don't have to buy that. You don't need blue blockers, get outside and see the sun. And so, so that's always the first step. And for me that, because of how simple that is, you know, if, if, if someone comes back to me and can't accomplish that, then I know it doesn't matter how great my meal plan is. It doesn't matter how, you know, fantastical my supplement protocol is for them. If, if we're not dedicated enough to, to spend zero money and five minutes of their time to do these, these two things at sunrise and sunset, we're probably not going to be a good candidate for lasting change. So that's, you know, that's sort of the first thing before we get into anything fancy, like, all right, let's accomplish this and tell me how you feel. And it's amazing, you know, and then you get into some of the blue blockers in the evening to, to help that whole sleep thing. Cause n- nobody sleeps well. I, I, so I train a lot of coaches at this point, like can consult for them and, you know, that sort of thing. And most of them have to wake up at four, four thirty, five o'clock in the morning, you know, these, these young kids now, because that's, I mean, and that was me, you know, 20 years ago. It's so you, you have to, cause you, you're, you're basically doing most of your work before everyone else goes to work or after they get off. You know, it's, it's hard to find clients to train at 10, 11 AM or three or four in the afternoon, but you can get tons of people to train at four five and six and six, seven and eight. Um, and you know, when that's the case, it's like, all right, well, moving or quitting your job isn't really the answer. 
So we, we do have to find other, other alternatives. So we can you know use things like red light, use things like blue blockers. Like I wear mine all day in the gym, try to keep my clothes, my, my skin as, as covered as possible. And so those are, those are the first, I think, dominoes, first boxes we look to tick. And then with, with competitors in particular, utilizing cold thermogenesis for, for fat loss and to a certain extent, appetite suppressant. Uh, if, you know, the more things we can do correctly and you start to introduce the winter aspects of fat loss with, with cold adaptation, minimizing carbohydrates, the way you train, you know, in, in those types of things to sort of elicit, um, you know, fasting mimicking sorts of things, you know, whereas where you can under eat protein to a certain extent and actually trigger AMPK and all these fasting pathways that, you know, are, are protein dependent really. So like, you don't have to deprive yourself so much of essential nutrients. You just, if you don't hit a certain threshold, you'll actually get a, uh, a nutrient sensing signal to, to trigger some of these pathways, especially when you start to use some of the cold. So that's a really, really big lever to pull with, with, you know, bikini competitors, right. Or, or, or bodybuilders who their existence is dependent on how lean they are. Um, so by doing stuff like that, we don't have to starve them, you know, because yeah. what happens a lot, especially on the coaching coaches side is, is you're, you're fixing a lot of broken people. You know, you're, you're fixing these people who have been on anabolics on all you know, these females who are unfortunately on hormones also to, to win because they're all, you know, if you see a physique by and large, that looks incredible, it's probably not natural, you know, for the most part. Um, so a, a lot of time is spent fixing these things and, and these levers, you know, like, like Dr. Cruz always says, you're, you're never going to get well in the environment that made you the sick and, and pulling these, these environmental levers are, you know, some of the biggest dominoes, they lead to the, the greatest amounts of change. So you're really moving them off of a sort of deprivation chemical based program onto a more nature based uh, abundance program, like where you, you feel good. Yeah. That's what I'm hearing, right? It's like when, when people adopt quantum strategies, whether they're, yeah, professional bodybuilder or a stay at home mom, it's like the, the path there feels good. (laughs) Yeah. It, it, I mean, it feels a lot. There might be a little struggle to get up at dawn and, you know, I, I often have a nap later or whatever, but, um, but yeah, it's a, it's a life enhancing process. Yeah. It, like I was, uh, I was just talking to someone yesterday who is, was in search of recovery strategies and was doing a lot of things wrong and, and a lot of simple things weren't being done, you know? So it's like, you're, you're, you're in a very tropical place right now. You should be maximizing You should feel like a rock star yeah. and it's just constant deprivation. And w- when these people are on these hormones, they can survive you know, fasted cardio multiple times a day and first thing in the morning, and you can survive so many insults because the, you know, the exogenous chemicals are, are really doing all the heavy lifting, so to speak. And, okay. and what we found such good success, like if you're going to, you know, like I said, the, the sports necessitate a degree of use for most people, you know, but what we found using all these strategies is that we can use way less and do way less damage. It's like, all right, you're going to use it. Great. How can we keep you from dying 10 years from now to, you know, from winning the stupid trophy? 
Like, <laughs> yeah. you know, um, yeah. because especially with, with strength sports, you know, there's longevity is a big component. You know, it's like I was saying, these things aren't necessarily optimal right. performance and optimal health don't always walk hand in hand. You know, you do have to make some sacrifices, but you know, you can, you can mitigate a lot of damage to increase longevity where you can compete longer. And, you know, like there's, there's lots of bodybuilders on the, like the peak of the steroid era in the um, basically in Arnold's generation, or there's not a lot just before uh, Schwarzenegger, because most of those guys are just so old. Now they've, they've died of natural causes, but the pre-steroid era bodybuilders did not die in their forties and fifties. Like we're seeing now, like lots of people dying. And, and now we're starting to see just Instagram personalities dying of, of all these things because it, the image is so important now, you know, most of, most of your, your fit influencers, I think is what, what people call them, uh, that, that don't compete, that aren't doing anything, but making money off social media are also developing these physiques with drugs and, and they're paying, paying a you know, drastic cost for this. That, that really isn't worth it. You know, I'm getting older now. So it's like, I'm, I'm trying to think about like 60 and 70 year old Rob, as opposed to, you know, 10 years ago, where it's just like, yeah, like, whoa, whatever. It doesn't matter. <laughs> yeah. You know, yeah, like, absolutely. Yeah. And I'm really, I'm like, I'm really interested in the idea of, of, you know, if you do it in the traditional way that you were talking about, it's like, you're almost sabotaging your health in pursuit of a, in pursuit of a goal. Whereas yeah, it, through the quantum oh, pathway, you're creating strategies that are going to enhance your health long-term and still pursue that same goal. Yeah. And you can use these, these basic, super simple levers that are so easy to pull to, to enhance longevity, to not need as many drugs, to, I mean, they're essential to repair yourself from all the damage. And it's, it's a doable thing. And I'm doing it with, with coaches and competitors. It, it's just, what we have to get them to understand is that it takes longer. Yeah. You know, the, the drugs speed everything up. You know, you, you basically what you could do in 12 weeks with lots of drugs, we're going to need six, seven, eight months for maybe even a little bit longer, just depending on how aggressive you want to be, but you can do these things without, you know, being in, in such a calorie deprived state that you lose your, your menses and you, you know, you wreck all your female hormones that you may never get back to a normal state, you know, 10 years from now that I, th I, so many of these younger kids, unfortunately, aren't really thinking of, but it, it's, it's helping and we're, we're doing it. It's just, like I said, so it's, it's a much slower process and people need to be okay with that. Like, okay. Just and that's, and that's also helpful. It's like cultivating a, a disciplined mindset, right. Where I don't necessarily get the reward that I want the minute that I want it. And oh, it's interesting. Yeah. I was, I did an interview um, last week with a woman who had a, had a really severe vaccine injury and she was saying the same thing. Like she started to use the quantum strategies to recover. And she was, she was like, you just have to understand, like it takes time. Yeah. You know, especially if you're, if you're not going to move, if you're not going to, you know, go from Atlanta down to the equator, like you can still be effective. You can, you can still get these things done. But like, for me, you know, like I said, it's, it's gone from not being outside really at all to, yeah. you know, making an effort now to see the sun, to, you know, lay on the deck for 10 minutes at, at peak sunlight. If I have a break or go to the pool for a couple hours every day or, you know, whatever it is, just, you have to change your lifestyle. Otherwise nothing else is going to change. You know, you, you can't, you can't out supplement a crappy diet and a crappy, like crappy choices. You just can't. 
you might for a little bit, <laughs> you know, so like a lot of these people like, well, you know, these supplements, like I've, I've seen them fix so much stuff. Like, well, you haven't seen them fix anything. It just hasn't come back yet because it's not gone. Right. You know, you can look yeah, at the, the supplements, not a root cause solution. Exactly. Still like, treating a symptom. You can look at their labs and see that this is not gone. It's just not here right now. But it's these lifestyle things where you where you can leverage some of these supplements that can be super potent. You know, like they they can be very useful, but don't like people are stepping over hundred dollar bills to to pick up the nickels for their B vitamins and all these other things that are like, yeah, they can be useful, but if you're not doing this stuff first, the the machinery is not going to run right without the right input. It doesn't matter what supplements you put in there, you know? Right. Okay. So let's, let's talk then about, um, other inputs that are helpful. Let's talk about, uh, circadian timed eating. Cause I love that one. <laughs> I, <laughs> hate, one is- I hate micromanaging food. It is. It's a whole reason I found light. Cause I just, <laughs> it makes, I have like an ADD brain and like, like, like all those details just make my head explode. So I love this because I can kind of generally eat well and look at the timing as opposed to all of the teeny little details. Yeah. So, you know, if you, if you think about each macronutrient proteins, carbs, and fats as to, you know, basically what their essential purpose is or proteins more for recovery and, and core functions like your immune system and, and, and your brain, even to a, to a small extent, lots of stuff like that. Whereas fats are, you know, a more sustained energy, more for hormonal usage and right steroid synthesis can come from a lot of that stuff. And then carbohydrates are instant energy. Like that's what they're, that's what they're meant to be. And in my field and community, probably way worse than any others is eat your carbs. Oh, you can't sleep. Have your carbs at night. You know, like it's so frustrating. Um, I, I always use, I'm a big fan of the office and I always use the office as an example. There was an episode where Michael every day at two or three o'clock would have some sugar and run around the office for an hour and then go to sleep. You know, it's like yeah. when you give a, a young child carbohydrates or sugar, they don't get restful and take a nap. They have more energy because they're not dysfunctional. And you know, like my, my field is not putting together that needing carbohydrates to fall asleep is a bit of an inherent dysfunction. Um, but right. if we start, if we start thinking about like, you don't even need to know any of the pathways. If you just start thinking about what those foods are, are meant to be used for and how they function at their core level, like protein and fats in the mornings and in the evenings with a little bit of veggies and all, you know, the majority of your carbohydrates should be in the afternoon because that is Instant energy, that's when you should be the most active. So, you know, having your lunch, going for a walk or whatever it is. And then what we know now that we haven't known for, gosh, you know, 40 years, I guess, is, is the actual timing of, of these genes. Like the, the TCA cycle is probably the most important, you know, metabolic pathway in all of biochemistry. And we know that there is a circadian rhythm to the majority of the enzymes in that pathway. So you're you're not designed to process and utilize carbohydrates as the you know as darkness falls like it's it is ingrained in the in the hardware or software whatever the word is of the system that those foods aren't supposed to be coming in and that's probably why they make you sleepy at that time and not give you energy because you're not processing them they're they're doing things they're not really meant to do 
and, and, you know, at the same time, when you start to look at those same sorts of pathways in the mornings, you're, you're built to utilize ketones. You're built to utilize amino acids and, and MCTs and, and all of these things like that, that make beta hydroxybutyrate and convert that to energy and all the genes that do all these things, all these proteins and enzymes are, are upregulated and function more in the morning. Um, whereas the carbohydrate genes are like midday, then they start to taper off. Like, so we know that in the morning and in the, and in the evening, all those pathways, all those genes for carbohydrates don't function optimally. Mm. And when you, when you start to look at the, like a lot of the data, you know, some of the, well, pretty much all the papers will say that a, a, a metabolically normal individual is essentially pre-diabetic after sunset. And so someone wow. that's pre-diabetic is essentially diabetic after sunset. Wow. So you start to look at all, and you know, like th these aren't, there's superficial data like that, where you're just looking at glucose and insulin, you know, like we know there's, there's diurnal rhythm, rhythms to, to lipid metabolism, to glucose metabolism, to insulin, like all of these things. And, and now, because this research is, been done for over 10 years, I guess, right? One circadian stuff won the Nobel prize in 2016, I think it was. So now we've got almost 10 years of all this stuff that that's starting to accumulate and people are studying the circadian rhythm to the TCA cycle in muscle tissue. Like your muscles aren't going to take up carbohydrates at night. So what I hear you saying is that when we eat is a major factor as opposed to what we eat. So yeah. if I want to go for ice cream with my family and I go at like six o'clock on a summer evening and we all have an ice cream cone and then we walk around outside and in the, well, while it's still light out and then stop eating as it gets dark and we don't eat again. That's a different, we're going to have a different response to the ice cream cone than if we went at six o'clock at a high latitude in January where it's been dark for an hour and a half even though it's, is that? Yeah, <laughs> there's, there's like, right? a and, and this is what I think that's yeah. just kind of blows people's minds about circadian eating, right? Like, so what's, what's happening there? <laughs> and, and, I mean, it's, it's crazy. It's, yeah. So, so if you look at, if you look at the pathway, just the, it's a TCA cycle. So it's just a circle, right? And there's, I don't know, eight, nine, 10 steps, I think 10 steps in that one. Um, something like that. But if you look at each of the steps, which is essentially a protein or an enzyme, we know because they're looking at all this stuff now, which they weren't looking at 10 years ago, um, that, that they have a, there's a diurnal rhythm to them. So you're designed essentially is what this means. You're not designed to have sugar influx at seven, eight, nine PM. Cause you're, you're not supposed to be active. And so you look at it at another way, because I think most people have, have at least heard this at some point is like sleeping in a cold room not only helps you sleep deeper, but it also actually does help you burn a little bit of fat. You know, it's a it's a bit of a slow process. It's not like you're going to wake up and, you know, see six abs overnight. But because of the you, know, you, you don't need ATP when you're sleeping, right, you're, you're, you're going to uncouple and do all these other things. But what, what carbohydrates do, because there's a connection to insulin, is that they turn that off. Right, like insulin is supposed to inhibit lipolysis and the and the utilization of of fat for fuel. Like there's there's a lot of overlap to these signals that are are fairly complex in their you know in their their pathways, but it, it's super simple. If insulin is up, fat use is down. Right, that's it's that simple. And it's so 
you know, if we can explain it this way, like you're, we go back to the electron transport chain and when, when insulin goes up, the, the enzymes and the proteins that are supposed to allow, you know, big fatty acids into the mitochondria to be used, they're turned off. So it doesn't matter how cold your room is. If you had carbohydrates a few hours earlier, those signals aren't working. So you're, you know, you're not catabolizing lipids and fatty acids and triglycerides, right? There's another big one on blood work that people are, should be concerned about. And this is a simple way to decrease that number is to not have carbohydrates four or five, six hours before bed, start respecting these, these circadian signals. So what would, what would be the ideal time to have from when you stop eating in until you go to sleep? Like how many hours do you need to have be food free before your head hits the pillow? So four to five for, for most people is the accepted, which is, which is kind of tough. Um, but also it, it depends on, well, it doesn't depend on, but if you, if you consider what you should be eating at those times, right, mm -hmm. a large amount of protein, a decent amount of fat, a little bit of vegetables, you know, potatoes, rice, whatever, a little bit of it, you're, you've got time to, to get through those process processes, because when you're, when you are asleep, there's supposed to be, you know, a, a cessation of peristalsis. Things are not mm -hmm. supposed to be moving, you know, digestively through the gut and into the intestine. Like there's not supposed there's, there's even a bit of paralysis in those processes at certain points in the night. Um, as you move through non-REM and REM sleep, like those, you are paralyzed. You're not supposed to be processing food. And so if there's things in there, they're not going to get processed. So you're going to start to, to have issues like leaky gut and maybe develop some of these autoimmune things that, that will go along with undigested and putrefying proteins, you know, just sitting in your gut that are changing your gut microbiome that are having all these downstream effects. So when you, when you start to eat, this is another a good mechanism for not really needing to count your calories unless you know, your livelihood depends on it, for example, is it, you can't really overeat protein. It's very difficult, right? I, I want to say in the research, I, I think it's like five to six times your body weight. So like I would have to eat almost a, almost a thousand kilos of protein to start to, oh wow you know, to start to get dangerous actually for my kidneys. Like, you know, before you start to see yeah. kidneys. Um, but those foods keep you full, you know, they, it, it's sustainable. Like yeah. I used to have a really big problem snacking, uh, not long before bed. And it's one, like when I changed my dinner that helped tremendously, uh, when I improved my sleep quality and started wanting to fall asleep faster, I was becoming, you know, I, I got to where I would be asleep before I would get hungry and with those snacks, you know, and like there's there's simple things if you're having issues with the snacking, just like a tablespoon of olive oil is very satiating, you know, because that's a that's a decent amount of fat and it's not that hard to process. And you can have that at the end of your meal if you just don't have the uh the appetite to start to consume those foods. There's lots of little things you can do that don't hamper digestion. But like as you start to respect those cycles, your your hunger patterns change. Um, like what, so one of my biggest issues is that like, I would get home from work around 9 PM cook or have, you know, a crappy meal, most likely at nine, nine 30, by the time I finished eating, showering, all that was 10. And then 
unwinding from, you know, being in loud noise music all day. It's like 1130 or 12. There was a snack in there. So when you wake up in the morning, no matter what time you wake up, you're not hungry because you had, had that big input of food that you didn't use. You didn't break down because you had it so late. And so it perpetuates itself. So once you, once you can start to shift that and have that, that big breakfast in the morning and, you know, like breakfast, like a King, lunch, like a queen dinner, like a pauper, right? Because you don't need, you don't need excess amounts of fuel to sleep. (laughs) It actually helps to not be, to not be super full. You'll actually sleep better. You know, you have better sleep. So that's, some of those like easy levers that you can start to pull. And, and for me, the, the biggest effect on that was the blue blockers putting me to sleep faster yeah. allowed me to start shifting. Like, you know, cause, cause for me, I, I, I needed to gain about 20 pounds to help me be competitive and strong, man, like 20 pounds of good weight, not like just gain 20 pounds and be fat, but 20 yeah. pounds of good weight to help me be stronger in my sport. But I, I would, I was missing basically one of my meals because if I could at 230 pounds, I could barely eat three eggs and two slices of bacon appetite wise in the morning for breakfast. Like that was a struggle to get down. You just weren't hungry. Yeah. People tell me that all the time when I talk about having a big breakfast, they're like, Oh, I'm not hungry till later. I go, (laughs) yeah. And well, like, okay. Not a good sign. Right. Yeah. You you just told me you're dysfunctional. Like that's not normal. That's not good. You shouldn't be skipping that meal. You shouldn't be, you know, backloading your fasting. Like let's think about, like, you know, think about how your day is supposed to work. You're not supposed to be yeah. your mo- most fueled and your most active at 9 PM. Um, you know, so when I started doing that and it, I had to eat earlier in the evening, I had to eat better. I wasn't hungry because I would have so, you know, and, and I mean, in less than a year, I was, I went from, you know, roughly three eggs, two pieces of bacon to five, five eggs, five slices of bacon, cheese in the eggs, cream in the eggs, you know, and having that gigantic breakfast, a decent lunch and a slightly smaller dinner and not needing those snacks. So you brought, um, you brought up fasting and I know that intermittent fasting is a very big trend right now. And, you know, everyone I talk to when I go to my hometown and see my girlfriends, they all talking about like everybody, the fitness (laughs) people are talking about it. The moms are talking, all the people. Um, and so my, you know, my understanding is that having that big fasting window is helpful. But what I hear most often uh, in the mainstream influencer world, not over in our little quantum corner, <laughs> is to is to have to make that fasting window really big by eating, not eating until noon, right? Having dinner at dinner time and then not eating again till noon. Whereas, you know. Would a quant would a quantum version of intermittent fasting then be like have dinner at like three thirty four p.m. in the afternoon and then eat breakfast at yeah. seven? Uh, so there's depending when you get up. There's really really good information on the timing of uh, lunch and dinner with with a lot of uh, of the circadian patterns, right? And and there's small changes like shifting shifting lunch back. From noon to 4 p.m., you see people gain weight, shifting dinner back from uh, it was seven from seven to 10, 7 p.m. to 10 p.m. You see gains in weight, increases in, in fat mass and less decrease in uh, fat percentage. And then you start to compare, like they'll compare isocalorically. So 
same, same calories and even the same total amounts of, of things like protein, for example. So the groups that have the majority of their protein before lunch will increase lean muscle mass, decrease fat mass, um, and just drop overall body weight more than people who have the exact same amount isocalorically and backloaded at dinner. So there, there's lots of, yeah, of and sorry to interrupt, but th- and this is what I find so, so interesting about circadian timed eating, right? Like if you can eat the same amount of the same thing, you just move the timing around and one version of it, you're gaining weight and one version of it, you're getting lean. Yeah. That's like when you Crazy. eat matters, if matters as much, if not more than, than what you eat. And it's like, there's, there's plenty of, of papers and actually lots of like meta analyses now on these timing studies. And it's, and and these are on average people, right? These aren't on, you know, six pack hundred meter Olympians. These are on 40, 50, 60 year old. A lot of these on females, a lot of them on people who are already overweight. A lot of these, a lot of these people gaining lean muscle mass aren't exercising. Like that is huge for things like sarcopenia. So they're gaining lean muscle mass just by circadian timing their food. Yeah. Because so if you get into the, like the molecular aspects of all these things, right. Um, mTOR and muscle protein synthesis, these are, you know, big, big buzzwords in, in my community, but so, you know, mTOR is your pathway to build lean muscle tissue, right. It's also builds organ tissue and all that other stuff. Right. But, and this is where a lot of the, the fasting stuff gets very uh, skewed to fit your um, your dogma, right. It is so you can have mTOR this, this muscle building pathway, occurs in muscle tissue and basically all the other tissue. Right. And, you know, people will say mTOR all year long is really bad. Well, no, it's not if that's in muscle. And, and we know that that is exclusively protein dependent, particular one specific amino acid. So you can, you can have, you know, large amounts of protein all year long at different times of day and get these different effects, or, or you can have, you know, X amount of protein at breakfast and one of the clock genes in particular is the you know control arm for for the mTOR pathway in muscle tissue and and that's actually coupled with melatonin also so uh bmal you know i guess the quantum community most most of these people are going to know bmal1 and some of the you know the period genes and all the some of the clock controlled genes right uh, bmal1 and melatonin are like the reciprocal coupling agents to the the mTOR akt pathway which is you know in muscle tissue specifically so with like with athletes and with anybody wanting to put on muscle mass, like, Hey, if you, you get your circadian system, right. And do everything else the same, you will increase your results or to the 70 year old lady who just needs to fight sarcopenia or the you know 60 year old man that just wants a little bit of an edge protein at the right time of day triggers these pathways. And you can, you know, it, obviously you're not going to look like, Conan, but it, you know, it's, it's either build muscle or break it down and you can take steps towards building them, building muscle. And the timing of that has a huge impact on, you know, of something as simple or as, as, uh, as devastating as something like sarcopenia. Wow. It's so crazy. I mean, we, we definitely had that experience in our family. We, um, were entirely focused on the, on the light piece of things. Um, which was necessary, right? In terms of figuring out how to mitigate artificial light at night and get outside more and be out in the morning sunlight. And we were 
we focused on that for, for a long time and we somehow missed the idea of circadian eating. So we've, we've been practicing the light for a while. And then we were like, oh, we should, we should really move our dinner like an hour, hour and a half earlier once we, and everybody in our whole family lost weight. Like I, we didn't, I did not change yeah. at all what we were eating. <laughs> It's, it's remarkable. Like how, you know, it's a, like we, sometimes we get so focused on light because it, it doesn't get the attention it deserves, Yeah. but yeah. you know, like the, the liver is most responsive to like social uh, feeding cues and exercise cues. Right. So if we get the light part, right. And screw up the feeding part, then we're, yeah. you, you know, you're, you're inherently in training dysfunction in those two systems. So you can be doing yeah, the sunlight, I mean, right. Causing and, chaos. Exactly. And then so circadian thing. eating is inherently part of the light story because the yes. light is controlling all these processes in the body and we're giving, putting the food in at the right moments in those processes. Exactly. Like that, and that can help. Like that's one of the, the tricks we like we use so like with MMA guys in particular, right? Your, your main eventers don't usually fight until like 10 PM. So as we get closer to their fights, you know, at peak performance oh, is like two to five. Right. PM. Cause it's like oh. a, it's a show. So it's, an evening yeah. entertainment. Okay, so we right can, ahead. we can train them, you know, in the afternoon and, and use like feeding cues and things. And this is another one of those like optimal performance doesn't really go with optimal health. Um, but you can start to entrain the body to, to push back that peak performance time, you know, for, for things like this. So for the average individual that, I mean, that tells you, you can, when you eat will alter like organ rhythms and alter, right. If, it, if it's not coordinated with the, with the master clock in the brain and the eye and all this other stuff that they have to go together. You can't really separate them. So fascinating. Um, okay. Well, thank you for that. That was like incredibly great. And just, just to wrap up for some, for anyone, because we do have a lot of people who listen, who are, who are pretty new to all of this. So just to wrap up, just say, um, yeah, say I'm a person, I've got kids and a job. Um, tell me sort of what my ideal timing is and let's say it's i don't know october in milwaukee so one of the like the easy way i try to explain it to everybody because i think most people are familiar with the buzzwords right it is breakfast should be like keto ish mm -hmm. lunch a little bit closer to vegetarian with some protein right like vegetarian diet's great just add a little protein to it and then at dinner you want to be a little closer to carnivore um and and that kind of brings in the substrates for how they're, how you're supposed to use them. Um, so, you know, vegetables are fine. You don't have to eat carnivore at dinner, but like, if you, if you sort of imagine the buzzwords and, and treat them like 90, 90 and 10, or even 80 and 20, you know, I'm going to have a lot of fat at breakfast and a little bit of veggies. If I like veggies, a little bit of, a little, a decent amount of protein, a little bit of berries or a seasonal fruit for carbs at lunch. That's when I should be utilizing all my energy. So that's when I want fast, readily accessible carbohydrate energy, you know, vegetables, fruits with, with you. So the, the interesting thing is that your protein values are, are basically absolute. So we know that you need, you know, X amount of protein in one sitting for it to actually do something metabolically. So you, you want to hit your, your, and you can have more, right? More is definitely better than less. Um, you know, so you, you want to kind of the foundation of all your meals should be 20 to 30 grams of protein and then breakfast, have a ton of fat with it, cream, 
you know, cheese in your eggs, nuts, like meat and nuts is a really great breakfast where you can get good dense fat, have some avocados if they're in season, olives, if they're in season, those are really good. You know, things on trees are really good in the morning because they get different amounts of UVA and red light a little bit more preferentially when the light's more on the horizon. Uh, so you can actually start to throw some of that like light physics into your food timing as well. And then the vegetarian, like a, a gigantic salad with a little bit of protein at lunch will be a really good choice. And then again, more. So with dinner and, and digesting protein, you can actually eat less. So you can do, you know, breakfast, like a King, lunch, like a queen, dinner, like a pauper, you can assimilate more protein from less of it. If your cycles are working properly, right? So it's, if you, you know, if you take two people, one of them stressed and one of them's not, and you give them the exact same amount of protein, the one that's not stressed is going to assimilate more from it. So that's, then this is why fat, like keto-ish, right? Uh, you know, 80, 90% fat, 20, 30% protein is better for breakfast because that's when cortisol is a little bit higher. So it becomes easier to get a more sustainable fuel source from fat because it's not as hard to break down and assimilate as protein by having that as your breakfast and then having, you know, a little bit more protein or, or even actually less protein for dinner, but being able to get a little bit more from it if your, your cycles are, are working properly. So that's, that's kind of an important component because a lot of people can develop um, intolerances and, you know, like a, a very common thing with bodybuilders is to develop intolerances to, to whey protein, chicken, and even things like broccoli because they're always having it and they're, they're always having some of those things after they train where, cor where cortisol is high. And those are easy things to develop intolerances and allergies to. So, you know, it, one of your quick adjustments is that if you get a, a bad email or a fight, you know, with your spouse at, at dinner time, don't try to eat a ton of protein, maybe go a little bit more towards fat, you know, our general instinct is to just go have carbs because it makes us feel better. But yeah. But, but you can get more from less protein. So it, when you start to time your foods that way, it actually becomes a little easier to, to get more from less. You know, you'll, you'll notice that you're not having to eat as much because you're, you're, you're utilizing things properly throughout the day. Super interesting. And it's interesting too, that it's not necessarily like, you know, one type of eating is the way to go. It's different types of eating at different times of day, which I love. That's what I just love so much about the quantum approach to things, right? Like there's very little dogma. It's, it's more adaptive to the needs. Okay. So yeah. let's say that I have a job and I, I get home around 6 PM and I'm, I'd like to have a, a meal with my family. Um, but I'm probably going to go to bed by like 9 30, 10. So is there a way to adapt dinner so that we can, we can digest it faster or do we really need that four to five hours? So that's a tricky question to answer because yes, you, you do really need the time. However, this is where you can, you can leverage things like uh, like a digestive enzyme supplement, you know, at, right. at dinner time to, to sort of help that, you know, if, cause like, let's face it, these things will happen, right? Like, yeah. okay. I have to eat at 8 p.m. every night. That's not great. What can I do to improve my digestion and which will in turn give me better sleep, right? So yeah, you know, can, you can have a good digestive enzyme. Uh, that would be my answer, you know, because we, we know one alternative is not optimal. So if I'm going to do this, this can help you. 
And it, you know, like that's one of those things where if we yeah. take the approach that all supplements are are crap and you yeah. shouldn't, you should never use it. Like, well, yeah. And again, you know. that's, this is like a, this is like a targeted quantum strategy, right? Cause I have supplement enzymes from like a podcaster who sent me a bunch of stuff and it says like, take three of these with every meal every day. Right. And yeah. so, but I'm like, I'm not going to do that, but I'm also not going to throw them out because sometimes I do feel a little bit gross and I feel like I think I'll take some enzyme. <laughs> so what yeah. you're saying is, yeah, it's like, okay, so let's look at the situation, the needs of the situation. We do want to accelerate, use something to accelerate digestion because I'm not eating dinner till 7 p.m. tonight. I'll take a few enzymes. Not yeah, like it's a, all it's or a, nothing. Yeah, it's a simple hack, right? Like I've got a bottle upstairs that I... You know, it's the same thing. Take two or three every meal. Like I don't need yeah, those. Yeah. You know, I used yeah. to have GERD issues really bad and and relied on them a lot. But as as the quantum signals improve, right? You you make stomach acid at the right times of day. And all right, I'm gonna have popcorn because we're going to the movies and it's 9 p.m. Like, all right, I'm gonna load up on on some some enzymes so that I can have a little bit better quality sleep, you know. So there's there's definitely some hacks that you can like you can use supplements, not all the time. Um, you know, but you can use them to help you function and help you like have fun with your family or have a nice date night or, you know, whatever the case may be. Yes. Yeah. And to your point, if we're, if we do things in a circadian optimized way, most of the time, then on the times when we don't, our body can handle it. We can see yeah, exactly. to support it through that. Okay. So last, um, last area, and then, uh, I'll let you go is, so we looked at circadian timed eating. Let's, Let's talk about circadian time to exercise. Okay. So this one is uh, it's a, it's really interesting. Um, and it goes back to the substrate utilization like rhythms in, uh, in the muscle tissue specifically. So we know just from normal circadian rhythms, like 2 to 5 p.m., you know, your, your brain, the nervous system is most coordinated. So in general, no matter how you train, even if you're just running, being more coordinated is better than being less coordinated. So that's like your optimal time for, for pretty much any other, like any form of exercise, two to five. Not very practical for most people. Um, but if we look at the other rhythms, uh, morning training, because the way it makes you utilize fats for fuel, it becomes a bit more advantageous to do metabolically demanding uh, hit, I guess is probably the, the buzzword that you could use. Um, for that, like short burst, you know, you're, you're not trying to deplete glycogen and do tons and tons of repetitions. You just want to work hard, rest a little bit, and you'll you'll use fats for your fuels. And there's so you know back to the supplement thing. This this is where a really good um, like supplement utilization. So using things like alpha ketoglutarate, BHBs, MCTs. If you're a morning exerciser, you actually use those fuels more when you exercise in the morning than when you do at, at other times, even in the afternoon or in the evening. So those are like useful tools. If you want to perform better and do you need them? No, but you'll work harder. You'll get a, an enhanced output. So if, you know, if those appreciable results to your exercise matter to you, that's a, a nice little hack that you can, again, you can utilize supplements for. There's really good information on uh, alpha ketoglutarate and exercise utilization for, I believe it's Alzheimer's as well. And, and how that and morning exercise facilitates the TCA cycle in the brain uh, to to actually function a little bit better and help, I think, astrocytes. Um, so then when you exercise in the evening, you have preferential carbohydrate utilization. So 
this can become one of those exceptions where if you, you know, if you train right after work at 6.30 PM or so, you will actually utilize carbohydrates in the evening way more than any other time of day, most likely, uh, because of, of what the pathways do. So you'd probably be better off to eat your carbohydrates before you train, but you will, you will replenish more because we de you deplete liver glycogen and muscle glycogen differently in response to exercise at different times of day. So you're going to end up repleting more of your glycogen stores, eating carbohydrates in the evening with, with evening exercise. So that's, you have to look at some of those caveats, right? Like right. I finish exercise at eight. Well, you know, so at that point you'd be better off to do it beforehand. So then you're actually, because you, it's essentially the opposite of the morning exercise, right? Where your fats enter that TCA cycle at the like alpha ketoglutarate step, right? Which is like step four or five. It's like four, four or five o'clock on the, on the clock dial of the cycle. Mm -hmm. And that's where those enzymes are upregulated in response to morning exercise. Um, so in the evening exercise, we get the, the earlier parts of the cycle and the end part of the cycle to help sort of regenerate those things. And then and they're pretty important because there's, there's reactions where things are made. Um, you know, it, the TCA cycle is a bit like a roundabout things come in, things shoot out, you know, you, right, things right. come in and you make other stuff from those like alpha ketoglutarate coming in, glutamate coming in, you know, there's lots of stuff there. Um, so that, that evening exercise again is where you want to do more higher repetitions um, because you utilize your, your stored glycogen more from the evening exercise. So you're going to deplete it more. So you want to replete it with carbohydrates more. Whereas that morning exercise, you don't need, you know, sets of, of higher repetitions. You just want harder bursts uh, with shorter rest. So it's a really good kind of, uh, so if you're stuck exercising in the evening, yeah higher repetitions, you know, chase the pump. And so if we look at it neurologically, that also becomes easier to recover from evening exercise, right? If you're, uh, if you're doing very neurologically, you know, CNS demanding work at seven, eight, 9 PM, it's going to be much harder to fall asleep from that. Okay. Cause your nervous system is actually going to stay ramped up for, you know, a few hours unless you just overtrain. But when you do, um, like, uh, pump depending, you know, chase, chasing the pump type of, of training, which is what you would want to do in the evening. You don't need, you know, a, a massive amount of neurological stimulation, mostly because the weights that are best for that, because the repetitions are so high, you don't need it. Um, okay. So one of the, one of the like the, the things that we recommend is that you don't utilize caffeine and nervous system stimulants because they're vasoconstrictors. So like for somebody to, to put caffeine in their pre-workout and their, like with their nitric oxide pre-workout, like those things cancel each other out. One's a constrictor, one's a, a dilator. Um, so it, those things go hand in hand where if you have to train that late, you don't need the, uh, the nervous system stimulants pre-workout. You, you'll actually train, you know, no matter when you did that type of training, you would perform better not using those stimulants anyway. So it, it, it's a really good way is that. By design, I guess, right? The body is uh, is not dependent on stimulants when it's active in the evenings. Okay. Wow. Okay. So this is very interesting, and I just want to just want to see if I'm getting it. Break it down a little bit. So there are ideal circadian windows for exercise, and then within those windows, there are types of exercise that are better suited to each of those times. Mm -hmm. better than others okay yep. 
So let's say we have a person who has a totally flexible schedule and they can do whatever they want, whenever they want. What would, um, and let's say it's just someone who wants, you know, wants to be fit and healthy, not like a, not like super athlete or anything. What would you recommend they do and what time? I mean, not, not detailed what they do, but like, sure. like a morning walk and then an afternoon big workout or like, what would that look like? So I think you would get the most out of fat loss objectives, doing them, uh, you know, the research always refers to it as early active phase, um, you know, the early active phase of the circadian cycle. So before lunch, if possible, because that exercise requires less carbohydrate for, for fuel you, so you can eat less carbs overall through the day, right. And, and sort of, which is beneficial for fat loss in the, you know, in the long run, um, with that morning exercise. So that's probably the best. Um, now you could also, again, exercise the same way, right? If you're, if you, if you're more coordinated and, and have more neural drive, you're just going to train harder in that two to five window. But in terms of fuel utilization, you don't see, uh, the upregulation of, uh, ketones and, and, or carbohydrates in that two to five window, you're just sort of, there's no good information on when you train at that time of day, you use one more than the other, but there's, there's a very distinct circadian response to morning exercise and evening exercise. And so if you're, you know, if you're able to exercise that two to five window, I think you're, it's a much more basic response. Okay. What is the, what is the most ideal response? Like if I'm say we do, you like sunrise and then you have the option of like working out and going for a half an hour walk. When should you do each of those? Generally speaking, you want to eat two to three hours before you train. Okay. Just to have, because training on an empty stomach sucks. Like you, you can't, there's no gas in the tank. You're not going to perform very well, right? Unless you're just going for a walk and that's not really, you know, that's exercise, but it's not, it's not training, right? So I don't, I don't want to downgrade that or anything, but it's, that's different than going into the weight room and hitting weights or assault yeah, bikes yeah. or something like that. So, you know, you wake up, sunrise, feed, digest, and then, then you do your exercise. So after two to probably three hours after sun, cause you should be eating at sunrise, right? We know that. And now going for, for 10 minute walks after every feeding has pretty potent uh, outcomes across the board for blood sugar, for digestion, and even for sleep, um, no matter when you're eating. So that's another very easy lever that you can pull. Um, just going for a little 10 minute walk after you eat. So wake up, see the sun. Yeah. Eat. Anecdotally, I notice sometimes, well, you know, if I have like a cheeseburger on a road trip, I will feel that cheeseburger for like 15 hours. Whereas if I have a cheeseburger and then go for a walk, it, you know, kind of goes on it, you know, and digest. But I noticed, I've noticed that because we just, just did a big road trip up where we are for the summer. And I was, yeah, like getting, eating, and then sitting down in the car <laughs> for four hours. Yeah. Completely transformed how I felt after the meal. And, you know, that's, that goes partially to that, that carbohydrates being instant energy. If you eat 
and go be active, even if it's not an exercise paced walk, if it, you know, it does require energy to go from point A to point B, no matter how fast you get there. Um, so it will enhance those things and, and you'll, you know, you'll, you'll demand it more. Like, so I, it's very, there's tons of anecdotal evidence of people having, you know, 150 grams of carbohydrates and then going to work out and then being in ketosis after they train and being able to be in ketosis you know, for the rest of the day while still having 150, 200 grams of carbohydrates, like you're the system is that adaptive to use it when you need it, as long as there's, it's not there in excess. Oh, interesting. Okay. Cause there's also a school of thought, um, going around the internet where it's saying that you should, uh, exercise at sunrise in a fasted state. What, what are your thoughts on that? <laughs> so it's not great. Um, it, you could make a case that there's benefit to that depending on what the outcome you're seeking is. Okay. So, you know, my, my world and what I think is hands down the best form of exercise, no matter what the goal is lifting weights, resistance training, no matter what your goal is being stronger improves your ability to reach that goal across the board. You look at other things like cardiovascular work that does not have overarching benefits to any other outcomes that aren't cardiovascular in nature, right? Um, so like a good example, like just to kind of conceptualize that if you're, if you can lift hundred pounds, lifting 20 pounds is really easy and you can lift 20 pounds faster for longer, all that sorts of stuff. But if with cardiovascular exercise, it doesn't have that same carryover to, to other outcomes. Stronger means faster, stronger means more powerful, stronger increases your endurance everything benefits from strength. So, you know, lifting weights like that on an empty stomach will eventually, because of cortisol issues and cortisol's impact on, on other hormones will eventually lead to issues with T3 and T4 and, and the whole starvation mode being a problem. That's essentially where it, where it comes, comes down to it, right? Your cortisol will downregulate things uh, to be in survival mode long-term when that starts to become a chronic adaptation. And we'll have like, if you're seven, eight, 9% body fat doing an hour of very low pace, low impact walking, steady state cardio will probably help you more than it will hurt you. But if you are already metabolically dysfunctional and 20, 30, 50 pounds overweight, it's going to hurt you more than help you most likely. Like that is not an advantageous way to do activity. You know, as we've talked about before, just timing, timing your food, not even changing how much you're eating, but eating it at the right times of day in the presence of the correct signals, you'll lose more weight in the absence of exercise. You'll gain more muscle in the absence of exercise. So there's, you know, you, you can find studies that support any outcome you want to find. Um, but looking at the, how the body works and how you can make it work better Intense, difficult exercise on an empty stomach is more worse for you than it is better in the long run. So I think a fairly um, typical routine, this is sort of mine and I know other people's is, is sort of get up around sunrise. I have to say it when the sun rises at 5.30, it's, uh, I don't always make it. It's tough. You know, in the, in the <laughs> early morning window. Um, I get up, drink some water, walk the dog, 
for, you know, maybe 40, 45 minutes, then eat a big breakfast and then do. So if someone say has a day job, would I like a good way to do it, be to eat that big breakfast and then do your, go to your fitness class or hit the gym uh, during your lunch break. Yeah. That's, you know, if you can pull that off, that's definitely going to be your best bet. Cause it, and cause we're looking at life, lifetime habits right now. If you, if you get stuck and, and want your morning exercise to be on an empty stomach every day before breakfast, probably in the dark, most likely in, under artificial light, that is a, you're going to be better off to not exercise at that time. If you can do it later in the day, you know, and, and like you said, going for a walk, like walking the dog before you eat is not the same as sprints on an assault bike for 30 yeah. <laughs> minutes or, you know, heavy six, six rep squats for 30 minutes, right? That's a very, it's very different. You're not walking the dog to, to get exercise. Yeah. You may sweat, your heart rate may raise, you know, a little bit, but that's very different than, than going into train or, or really get hard exercise. And even like doing that with a dog is, is a very good social entrainment cue to help entrain the the proper circadian rhythms at, at sunrise because a raise in body temperature, uh, an acute rise in cortisol, just from, from being aware and walking the dog itself will, yeah. will help the timing of proper circadian rhythm. So that's a very useful tool, but it's, you know, it's different than going in for a training session. Yes, absolutely. And so those training sessions are more beneficial after a big breakfast in the yeah, daytime. For sure. Ideally yeah. not late at night. You gotta you gotta feed the machine. And that's what I try to try to tell people. Like you wouldn't expect your car to perform very well on an empty tank of gas, right? Or or yeah. with no electrical charge, whatever your your vehicle choice is. And it's the same thing with your body. Like you your brain has to have certain things to function, your organs have to have certain nutrients to function. So and now with the society that we have, if your job, you know, necessitates you sitting all day long, uh, a lunchtime workout is actually might be more beneficial to you than workouts at other times a day. Cause that's when you're supposed to be out and active in the first place. You know, that's a, that's a really good rhythmic uh, pattern. And that's where you can have carbohydrates before that workout. You know, you can not deprive yourself of food you enjoy that are nutritious. If you're going to go use them after that, you know? Wow. All right. Robert, thank you so much. <laughs> this yeah, my is pleasure. a super dense episode. I'm going to recommend this be one of the ones, you know, I'm going to recommend people listen to this more than one time. Um, awesome. <laughs> you've given us a lot to think about and a lot of information. Um, but even just the high level takeaways, like it matters when you eat and it matters when you exercise. Um, and if you're doing all the work to have a good circadian rhythm, you may as well get those things timed to fit into it. Yeah, absolutely. So, thank you so much. Just quickly, uh, where can people find you? We'll put it in the show notes as well, but just let people know yes. now. So I use Instagram a lot for like the educational information. That's uh, Robert C. Jacobs. And uh, my website is outlawstrength.com. So if you have questions about training, there's, uh, you know, be some articles and stuff on there too. Okay. Fantastic. Thank you so much. Yeah. Thank this you. It was amazing. <laughs> <laughs> thanks, thanks for having me. This has been the Quantum Biology Collective Podcast. To find a practitioner who practices from this point of view, visit our directory at quantumbiologycollective.org. If you are a practitioner, definitely take a look at the Applied Quantum Biology Certification, a six-week study of the science of the new human health paradigm and its 
practical application with your patients and clients. We also love to feature graduates of the program on this very podcast. Until next time, the QBC.